That's some sensational catch. Absolutely brilliant from Hooper. Was hit back permanently by Maiello. Hammered down the ground. It could fly all the way for a maximum. It's going to soar into the sky. That's the six they needed. That's 50 for Furbrush. What a knock that is from him. Outstanding striking, and that six brings Guernsey back into the game. Could be a catch. Oh. What a catch. One-handed grab, and that's Josh Butler, the captain. Oh, my days. We have been treated to some catches in this tournament. Welcome to Guernsey Cricket's podcast. I'm Ben Furbrush, Cricket Development Manager. And on this podcast, we're going to be chatting to players old and new, coaches, administrators, and hopefully a few other cricketing keen beans along the way. On today's show... We have the man who is the youngest bowler to reach 50 wickets for England. He also has 125 wickets in 36 tests at an average of 30.40. Stephen Finn. Stephen Finn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, so if we go right back to the start, sort of where your career started off, you were schooled, I've done a bit of research, in Palmerton School in Watford. That's right, yeah. Yeah, huh. interesting. It's just, it's, it's, um. I had a very normal upbringing. I think a lot of the guys that played around me when I was a kid had um, private school education. Um, so I was one of a small batch of guys who sort of got spotted out of the state school system and was very fortunate and the right people saw me at the right time, I think. So yeah, I was pretty lucky to fall into a first-class county at a young age. You obviously went through the age groups at Middlesex. What sort of age did you start getting involved in the Middlesex setup? Um, 14 I started I, I first started um, playing for Hertfordshire when I was sort of 8, 9, 10 um, Alex Hales actually played with me for Hertfordshire at the time right. until he got told he wasn't good enough anymore and then had to leave to go to Buckinghamshire <laughs> which is quite funny and ironic given what he's gone on to do um, in the game so yeah I um, started at Hertfordshire between the ages of nine and um, and thirteen, and then moved to Middlesex when I was fourteen, and sort of haven't looked back since. And from there, was it club cricket alongside of uh, sort of the minor county stuff? Yeah, I thought it was quite important, and my parents and coaches and people did too that that you play adult cricket as soon as you can. I saw a lot of guys who played for or went to private schools; they were sort of forced to play against kids on the weekend when they were 14, 15, 16 um, years old. And I think that I sort of gained an advantage on people when I was that age by playing in the men's first team for the club that I played for Um, and competing against men who were bigger and stronger and better than me at that age, I think helps when you have to make a step up to professional cricket. Yeah. And then following on from that, you actually made your debut uh, for Middlesex only at the age of 16. Uh, I think you were the youngest ever debutant. I don't know if that's still the record uh, for Middlesex. Yes, it is. I think so. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, yeah, again, that's, that probably showed that the club cricket put you in good stead. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, I was very fortunate to be seen at the right time um, and for sort of opportunities to open up as I went through my early career. Um, yeah, it was... I, I, yeah, I see myself as very lucky, to be honest, to, to have sort of made strides when I was young. And I do think I sort of stand by that, having played adult cricket when I was a kid, does stand you in good stead when you go and have to be around a, a men's environment in a dressing room, competing against men, um, even though it is at a higher standard than club cricket. I think the actual mentality of it is the same. Your debut, would you have any sort of strong memories of that? Or was it all sort of just a whirlwind and... It was it was strange. So it was a university game, so it classified as first class, but it wasn't actually a championship game. So 
Um, it probably wasn't as intense as a full-blown county championship game would be against other um, fully-blown professionals. But um, the guys that we were playing against were all guys that I'd played against in second-team cricket that, that were playing for Cambridge University at Fenners. Um, and, and, yeah, it was familiar, but also more than the opposition. I think it was sharing a dressing room with the likes of Ed Smith, Ben Hutton, um, O.A. Shah, guys who I'd watched playing cricket for the first team at Middlesex and for England. Um, I think Ed Joyce might have played the game as well. Alongside all of this, you obviously played England age group cricket as well. Again, was that sort of right place, right time, do you feel? Or was, was it something that you obviously had aspirations of playing for England? Yeah, I suppose the age group stuff, for me to get into that setup in the first place was a case of right place, right time. There was a guy who was a friend of my dad's who worked for the South of England as the manager. Um, and I don't think Hertfordshire were going to put me forward for the initial like under 12 or 13 trial, whatever the first age group is, that you go into that system. But he'd see me playing for the club team around Watford that I played for called Langlebury. And he thought I was half decent. So he proposed me to go for a trial for it. Went to the trial. We played against England women at uh, Radley College, I think it was, like when I was 13 years old. I did okay in that game. Um, and then from that point, I was in the system, in the South of England system, um, and sort of got picked up along the way. So it's only really by chance that I found myself in that position in the first place. Alongside that, was there other sports you played? Or was it always just cricket? I loved football, the keen footballer, basketball I really enjoyed. Um, I think it's actually important for young people to play a number of sports and not just pigeonhole yourself because um, I think a lot of the best sportsmen that I've seen and the best cricketers that I've played with are all multi-sport people. You look at A.B. de Villiers, Joss Butler, guys like that, Chris Wokes, people who are just capable of doing a lot. Um, that comes from a very sporty, diverse background when they were kids. So, yeah, I, I tried to play as much as I could, was keen on athletics as well, but um, cricket was the only one that I was really... I was decent at the others, but not never good enough to do anything with it. So cricket was the one that I fell into. Yeah, I think there's obviously those transferable skills, which which help massively uh, from the other sports. Um, I know over here, a lot of the guys who play hockey are very good cricketers just because of the hand-eye and, you know, they can they can play different shots, sweeps and scoops and stuff, which is a lot harder if you've only just ever played cricket. Yeah, I think you look at someone like Owen Morgan, who's a very good friend of mine, would have played... Um, hockey, hurling, things that require strong wrists when you're um, when you're young. Joss Butler as well played a lot of hockey when he was a kid, having spoken to him. Um, and then that sort of transfers into the reverse sweeps, sweeps, scoops and stuff that they're capable of playing or that they've transferred across to a cricket pitch. Yeah, So having a diverse background, I think my parents were very keen for me to do that, probably to make sure I was out of the house for as long as possible as opposed <laughs> to actually being good at sports. But um, yeah, it, it served me well in the long run. Um, fr- from those days, is there any real strong sort of childhood memories about when you first started getting into cricket? I remember, so my dad um, was quite old for a father, so he'd played and finished playing cricket by the time I was coming through as a kid. But there was one game when I was 11 playing in the fourth 11, I think 10 or 11 playing in the men's fourth 11. And we were literally short a player and there was no one. They couldn't find anyone. So they asked him to dust his kit off and promised that he could just stand at fine leg and not bowl and bat at 11, but he'd get to share the field with me. So he agreed reluctantly to do it. And when we got there, they reeled him off for a 15-over spell from one end. 
He was a left arm, and he he was good. He 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 was very good. He played for Hertfordshire when he was um, when he was younger, but he hadn't bowled for about ten years. And then a fifteen over spell, he couldn't get out of bed for a week after. Yeah, I was going to say he probably couldn't walk. One of my earliest memories. <laughs> yeah, he literally literally could not walk. Yeah, so I think he burnt the kit a few days after that and said, "Okay, again." Um, have you got any real funny sort of cricketing stories that uh, mainly on the pitch? Obviously, we we always sort of laugh and joke. There's plenty off them, um, but is there any? real funny ones you can remember from on the pitch it's it's difficult isn't it because i think in this day and age now with the amount of stump mics and cameras and things there are there's not actually as much banter as you um as you hear or as, as you used to hear rather and as you used to see there's not as much confrontation so it's all pretty tame really but there was probably one that stands out to mind probably because of the character who it was that was sledging me was um playing in the ashes edge baston test match in 2015 and i'd had a long period out the side about it was two years out the side i think from my last test match came back in third test of an ashes series and we were in the second innings and the game was sort of in the balance on the line if australia started a, a big partnership then we could have been a long way behind the game but we needed wickets and quick wickets to be able to stay in it and keep fighting so I came on and my first four overs of my spell in that innings went for 24 and I was bowling at Warner and Smith and they were hitting me around a little bit and every time David Warner sort of tucked one off his hip down to fine leg or hit a single he'd run past me and he'd say 130 129 like referencing the kilometers an hour I was bowling or he was saying I was bowling and obviously 129 kilometers an hour is pretty slow <laughs> um so every time and he kept going and going and going and then after a few overs I found my rhythm a bit better and started bowling a bit quicker but he'd still tuck it off his hip 129 125 and then about two overs later I, th- I started I took two wickets in an over I think and then he just all of a sudden switched and started trying to be my best mate like started trying to <laughs> not fire me up but but he'd already pissed me off to the point where I just wanted to try and take wickets and luckily we went on to win the test match in the series so um, I could put him in his place a bit <laughs> yeah I've actually made note on that actual test match I didn't know that story before then but uh, yeah quite a good one and quite good that it's against against him in my opinion <laughs> yeah he's 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 a funny character isn't he i played with him at middlesex in 2010 um and he was great like he was he was just loads of energy really bubbly around the dressing room enjoyed playing with him like struck up a decent friendship you'd go have a few beers with him and and had a lot of fun but then i suppose the fallout around the 2013 series where um you know the whole joe root incident in the walkabout and stuff um i suppose soured people's opinion of him but but I've I've always stood by the fact that I don't mind him as a bloke he's um he's can be misunderstood and he's got a certain way of going about things but he's a he's bloody good player yeah yeah no definitely moving on to sort of England stuff um you made your test debut in Bangladesh in 2010 uh come away with figures of 14 overs one for 48 in the first innings and then 18 overs one for 47 in the second innings how was that Um, a lot of players that we've had on in the past have spoken about uh, sort of belonging at that level. Did you feel feel like you belonged at that at the test level? Um, I suppose I didn't have enough time to think about it. To be honest, I was 
a late call up for the squad because of an injury to Ryan Sidebottom. So I wasn't in the initial squad to go out there and be part of it. Um, I'd just been on a Lions tour to Dubai and had bowled well out there in front of selectors who were watching and a couple of the more senior players who were in the test team um, were out there on that Lions tour as well. So that might have counted in my favour. But I got a phone call from Jeff Miller saying, pack your bags you're going to Bangladesh tonight. So I literally had to pack all my cricket kit and get on a plane to go to Bangladesh that night. I think two days later, I was playing a practice game in front of Andy Flower and all the senior players there for, um, for I think it was a two or three day game. And then literally two days later, I was making my test debut because I'd done well in that practice match. So everything happened pretty quickly. So I never actually had time to think or worry about belonging at that level. I sort of just cracked on and, and got on with it. I think, again, like I said earlier, with going into a dressing room where you're surrounded by people that you've watched on the TV was very surreal. Um, you've got the likes of Kevin Peterson, Cook, Swan, Broad, like guys I'd literally watched on the TV and idolised for the Ashes series about six months earlier. Um, all of a sudden I'm thrown into a dressing room with them and I'm part of that team. I think Graham Swan, I'd been listening to this tune and I thought it was a really good tune um, on the way over to sort of find myself up playing test cricket. I think it was a Timberland and Nickelback mashup mix or something and it was almost like an initiation where Swan said to me, right, you want to put your iPod on, we'll see what you've got. <laughs> and I put this tune on and I think it lasted about 15 seconds. He literally got my iPod, threw it out the window, said, you never get <laughs> go on that thing again. And then I never, never ever played my music. But it, it, was, um, it was almost like that sort of banter was like, a, you have a laugh with it. And just it's like an acceptance that you're part of that group now once people are taking the piss out of you. So um, I think that was more the winning the respect of my teammates in that regard I think rather than going out there and performing on the pitch because I think that the two go hand in hand so um, yeah the fact that they made me feel welcome let me allowed me to go and express myself on the pitch and the numbers weren't fantastic for a test debut but for the circumstances and the situation I was pretty happy with how I walked away from that series. Yeah you obviously sort of always earmarked an exciting bowler um, sort of in England always looking for that guy that bowled sort of express pace uh, and obviously with your height gained quite a steepling sort of bounce did you feel that was sort of added pressure to always bowl quick when playing for England um no not at the beginning I don't think I because it just happened naturally I didn't have to think about it and bowling quick I could just do it and each year for about three or four years from the ages of 19 to 23 I'd come back and I'd just get quicker each year and I didn't really understand why or how I think my body was just developing to a point where sort of got to this optimum level when I was about 23 where I could just my warm-up balls were like 88 89 miles an hour and you just warm into a spell like that so um, yeah I sort of had the build-up to that, I suppose the problems come when you start thinking about it and expecting it, as you say. So I'd sort of not thought about it to the age of 23. Every year I'd come back quicker. Um, hadn't really, you had a few speed bumps along the way, but you feel like you're feeling your way out in international cricket and learning as you go along. And I certainly felt like I was sort of improving each year I came back in that scenario. Um, but then I suppose the the problems come when you have a few bad performances and the press get on your back and people then have this idea of how you should be bowling in their head and you have to decide whether you're going to stay true to yourself or whether you're going to try and satisfy other people. So 
sort of come to this crossroads in your career or, or at that stage of your career where um, there's a lot of external noise and I think the good players are able to black that out and the ones who struggle a bit aren't. Um, and yeah, you, you sort of have to just manage the expectation, I suppose. And, and that's something that in my early career, I felt like I did because I had, I had a lot of confidence. But as you go on, that sort of chips away at it. It's really interesting that you say that. I want to move on to sort of like the mental side of, of, of the cricket as well. You sort of really hit the ground running. Uh, 2009 looked like it was a really breakthrough year. You took 53 wickets in the county championship uh, at 30.64. And then obviously had that successful tour you mentioned to the OAE with England Lions. Following on from there, your home test debut was against Bangladesh. Um, and you took four for 100 in the first innings and then five for 87 in the second innings, winning the man of the match performance. Sort of at that stage, you must have just been at the top of your game, sort of feeling on cloud nine. Yeah, again, it's like you don't, you go into those scenarios, especially early in your career, just trying to give a good account of yourself because you've got nothing behind you to, um, you've got no mental scarring, you've got no um, expectations, I suppose. You've just, you're going out there trying your hardest and if it works at that age, I think I was 21, 20 or 21, it works. And if it doesn't, then you're like, well, I've got an entire career to try and make it up, I suppose. And I've got going to have other opportunities. I think as your career goes on, managing those expectations and trying to deal with the emotional ups and downs of looking over your shoulder or feeling like your time's running out. I think that's where people run into trouble. So at that stage, yeah, when I was 20, 21 years old, making my debut for England, just going out there trying my hardest off the back of some good county performances early in that summer your confidence is high and you can just run and enjoy cricket and that's certainly what I was doing yeah and then 2010-11 was sort of like a bit of a whirlwind for you because you won the best emerging player at the ICC awards in 2010 and then went on to make your Ashes debut at the Gabba taking six for 125 that must have been amazing. Uh, one of the wickets really stands out to me. I was actually at that game. It's, it was a caught and bowled off Katic, which uh, it was literally like a daisy cut and you managed just to get down and snare it. Yeah, I remember that. Well, actually, that was, that was my first wicket. It was, um, it, it was pretty whirlwind, to be honest. It, it still doesn't really sit in. Like, it, it still doesn't really sink in, I don't think, what we managed to achieve on that tour because I think subsequently you look the teams have gone down there and I think over the course of two Ashes series since we've lost 9-0 um, mm. and so going into that series again I had no mental baggage of Australia before I had no experiences of it being a bad place to tour or a tough place to tour because a lot of the older guys a lot of the guys who'd been there in 2006-7 and even before that had said that it's tough and once they get on top of you they're just on top of you and, and that's it. You find it very hard to come back from because um, because of the nature of everything, the public, the, the players, the way they play, the, the conditions, the weather, everything is sort of against you as an English cricketer down there. That's why it is the hardest place to tour. But um, on that tour, right from the moment we stepped off the plane, we said that we wanted to assert ourselves on the Australians in the warm-up games. We said that we wanted to try and get on top of them in every way that we could. And we wanted to try, and, to try and win the public over. And that was really the main aim of that tour, was to walk away from it having... Yeah, we wanted to walk away from it having won the public over. So, um, yeah, I think I didn't have any baggage of, of those previous tours that the other guys were going on about. So I just remember that tour so fondly of having fun. We celebrated with Barmy Army after every time we won a test match. 
um, it was the sense of cohesion that we had whilst we were down there was amazing and, and something that given what's happened since with the tours that I've been on whilst we've been down there um, makes it even more special. Yeah, so you went on to play uh, Adelaide and Perth as well, uh, taking a further eight wickets. Despite being the leading wicket taker, you actually dropped for the, the next test, uh, which must have been Melbourne. Um, that must have been pretty tough to take. Yeah, it was a different Christmas present. We <laughs> day to, to be told that you're missing out because I still had hopes and aspirations that I would play in that game. I think up to that point in my career, I'd never really been dropped from a team, whether that's a club team, county team, uh, England, up to that stage, I'd played every game since I made my debut. So um, it was the first time in my career I'd really felt that rejection of being dropped. So um, that hit me pretty hard. And it was hard to, yeah, it was a difficult week, really, because, you know, my family were there. They'd come over to watch me playing two Ashes test matches in Australia, which... um, my mum and, and my dad didn't make it actually because he's not a big fan of flying. But my mum and sister came over um, to watch those last two test matches and I got dropped for them. So they just had a holiday watching other people play cricket. Um, <laughs> so it was, yeah, it, it was strange. I think you understood why they did it because they wanted, I went for over four runs and over through a, through a whole test match at the, in the Perth game. Um, and Mitchell Johnson had an absolute storm of a game. I think took 10 wickets in the game and, and bowled us out there. And naturally, when the batting team gets rolled over, it's a bowler who gets dropped for the next test. Um, the batting, the batters all retain their place, but a bowler gets dropped. That just seems to be the way it works with cricket. So, um, yeah, it, it was it was difficult to take that being dropped, but still, I've got very fond memories of that Ashes series on a whole. 2011 must have been a really tough year for you. Um, you played one test match, um, but equally being quite a good year as you became the youngest England bowler to 50 wickets. Um, that must have been a bittersweet sort of year by achieving that feat, but not really featuring so much in the test team. Yeah, I think that was the year where, well, it was the year where Chris Tremlett and Tim Bresnan filled the third seamers role um, because we only ever played four bowlers in that team. It was a, a list of six specialist batters, a wicketkeeper and four bowlers. And that was very rigid in the way that we played our cricket through those years. So. Um, yeah, it was always me, Bresnan, Tremlett during those 2010-11 years who were fighting for that third seamer spot behind Broad and Anderson who were naturally going to play every game. So, um, yeah, a bit frustrating. But again, you're still you're young. I'd played 12 test matches, took 50 wickets, was averaging, I think, 26 or something with the ball. So, um, yeah, even though you're not playing and I was frustrated that I wasn't playing, you're still thinking that you're learning. Um, I went back to county cricket and did pretty well in those years. Um, and, and yeah, you feel like you're learning and developing your game all the time. And I think, um, yeah, at the time, that's what kept me going through. Really. Yeah, it seemed that sort of you fell out of favour of test cricket then, but obviously uh, ODI cricket, you made your debut um, in Australia following that Ashes series. Um, how was that? Obviously, ODI cricket's great playing as well, but probably not quite the same as, as test cricket. Yeah, but I think at the time it wasn't. No, I think since then, I think especially since 2015, when the emphasis went towards one-day cricket as opposed to test match cricket, I think um, more emphasis has been put on the importance of one-day cricket. But yeah, at the time, one-day cricket was probably a bit on the back burner and that showed in our results. Then I think my debut series, we lost 6-1 to Australia after that 10-11 Ashes win. So um, yeah, there were pretty stark realities with 
um, with where we were at as a one-day team. But again, it was an opportunity to play for your country, and that's something that I was very passionate about and enjoyed doing. Um, and yeah, then the game was played at a slightly different pace to what it is now. I think if someone scored 300, it was an absolute monster of a score 10 years ago, whereas now if you score 300, you almost expect that to be chased down in international cricket. So the climate has changed in that regard. But again, those those couple of years where, um, or that first year in 2011, where I was feeling my way in one day cricket was good fun. Bold him! Beautiful bit of bowling from William Peatfield. The stump comes crashing out the ground and that's a big wicket here in Guernsey versus Denmark at the KG5. That's the first wicket. Letizia is the one who strikes. He gives it a big celebration. He writes it up in a book. He notes it down and sends them off. That man sing to that list. That's the breakthrough Letizia needed. That's the breakthrough Guernsey needed. And that's the breakthrough that Mark Ladder took my left one to big smile in his face. And a wonderful shot there. Cover drive for four. Don't worry, find the boundary twice in this game. In 2012 was a bit of a weird year for you. So you actually managed to get a law changed in cricket. Um, which I believe is actually called the Finn Law. Yeah. Or the, uh, which I is. Forget about that one. <laughs> so, how did that come about? Was that something you'd always done through cricket? So, just to explain actually what it is, is you knock the stump in your delivery stride, um, which used to be a yeah. dead ball and is now a no ball. But was that something well, you'd always struggle with? It was never anything. It was never a dead ball. Um, right. So, the entire history of cricket, I think Sean Pollock, Glenn McGrath, people who'd naturally got close to the stumps had always flicked it with their finger on the way through or their hand on the way through. So, I mean, someone like Sean Pollock, I think did it because his, the way his arm came down, he naturally got so close to the stumps that he would hit it quite frequently. Um, and it was never a problem. But in 2012, I'd sort of created this bad habit, like not really knowingly, but I was getting incredibly close to the stumps and my back knee was hitting the stump coming through the to my delivery stride so it didn't affect how I was bowling the ball um, but it would just knock the bowels off at the bowler's end and I'd probably do it once every five overs maybe something like that but in a test match at Headingley in 2012 against South Africa uh, Graham Smith I, I got him out caught first slip caught Strauss at first slip um, but that ball I had not the bails off with my knee so he complained to the umpire Steve Davies from Australia who then um, decided to call it a dead ball for the first time in cricket history um, had decided that Smith had been distracted um, by my knee hitting the stumps so then it just became this farcical bit where because he'd set the precedent of it being a dead ball when my knee hit the stumps, every time it happened, they would call a dead ball. So, and this, and this sort of makes it why it was an absolute farce was because whenever I bowled the ball after that, I didn't get Smith out. He'd hit it for four. A couple of times he hit the ball for four, but because I'd knocked the bail off with my knee, it was called dead ball and it was just bowled again. Um, the four didn't count. So, um, he couldn't have been that distracted if he hit all, yeah. like a few of the other ones for four. So, um, yeah, I think it was a pretty poor piece of umpiring, to be honest with you. And the ICC got backed into a corner where every time someone knocked the stumps with their arm or with their knee or whatever it was at the bowlers end, couldn't be called a dead ball because the game would take forever. So 
Yeah. Um, is, did you have to then go back and remodel sort of the, the bowling action to, to prevent you from doing that? Well, yeah. And part of the problem with playing international cricket and at that stage I was playing in all three teams. I was in the test match team, the one day team and the T20 team. You don't actually get any time away to work on anything. So I played the entire English summer. You then go straight from that English summer to a T20 World Cup. You then come home for a week. You then go to um, India for two months. You then come home for a week. You then go to India for a month. Then you go to New Zealand directly from India for two months. So it sounds complicated, but you're away from home practicing or training every single day and competing. So there's never any ever an opportunity to actually strip things back and go back to basics and um, and try and work on what you're doing. So I tried to find a short-term fix, which was shorter my run-up and just attack the middle of the crease so that I couldn't dart in at the last second. It was, it's, it's something that was just happening without me thinking about it. So um, because I was just playing and playing and wasn't really getting any breaks, I decided to try and um, create a short-term fix, which was short of my run-up, which subsequently was a poor idea. Yeah. Um, you, you then went on from there. So, you, like you said, you were in all the teams. Uh, 2012, uh, you played pretty much all the ODIs. Um, and then 2013-14, uh, went back down under for the, for the Ashes uh, series, and you didn't feature in that series, being sent home. Uh, and actually deemed being not selectable by the then, I think it was one day coach, uh, Ashley Giles. So previously where I mentioned about mental strength, that must have been pretty tough or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's probably the toughest period of my career. Um, and still there's a lot of mental scars surrounding that and the stigma of it. Um, people writing articles about me having the yips and probably David Lloyd, who was the chairman of the PCA at the time, um, write an article saying I've got the yips and I'd do well to ever play cricket again let alone international cricket so there's a lot of hurtful things written and said during that period um, which um, still don't sit well with me now um, and yeah I suppose again it's one of those things you're, you're living your life in the public eye so therefore every mistake or every bad decision that you make is amplified and given the hostility of an Ashes tour the fact that we were losing, we were getting hammered in every game. Johnson was having a day out bowling as well as I've ever seen anyone bowl in my life. Um, it was sort of the perfect storm um, of things to the point where you just lose your confidence and, and that confidence and youthful um, exuberance that you have when you're a kid and you're playing when you're 20 or 21, when you've played three or four years of international cricket and you've been on that treadmill for that length of time. Um, it's easy to get worn down by it. So, so yeah, I sort of got to a point where I just had no confidence in what I was doing and, and that's what it was. It was a lack of confidence in my method because I'd been confused by the change of the law, um, having to look for a short-term fix that I had in 2013 with the shortening of the run-up and then going back to a longer run-up and just confusing the mechanics of my action and losing confidence through that. So, yeah, that's that's what resulted in it. resulted in me sort of quite publicly being shamed and sent home for it. Following obviously that, all that hard work to get back, uh, 2015 must have been amazing. Um, you were reselected by England in the Ashes squad once again. Uh, you missed out on the first two tests, but then played in the third one, which you actually mentioned at Edgbaston. Um, in the first innings, you got both Steve Smith, uh, who was then 
number one batter in the world uh, and Australia captain Michael Clark as your two scalps in the first innings uh, with figures of two for 38. Then in the second innings, uh, you not only took the wickets of Smith and Clark, but you also got Adam Vogus, Mitchell Marsh, um, Peter Neville and Mitchell Johnson to pick up the Man of the Match award and bowl 21 overs, six for 79. I mean, that must have been amazing from where we've just spoken about where you were at. Yeah, it made me want to, made me want to put two fingers up at yeah. people. Um, and yeah, it was yeah, it was satisfying because I know how, how hard I'd worked the early mornings that I'd done with Richard Johnson, the Middlesex bowling coach at the time, um, that we'd put in so many hours to strip my action back and to get it back to what it was um, and to, to rebuild confidence by that and by playing cricket and playing for Middlesex and then going into the one-day team and doing it there in front of... Um, big crowds and the international stage. Yeah. So um, I suppose that test match was sort of the culmination of the last two years or 18 months, rather hard work that I'd, that I'd put in and people around me had put in and supported me through it for, you know, for which I'll forever be grateful for those people. Yeah. You obviously, you went on to play the fourth test as well, uh, where England um, clinched the series once again, adding to your impressive CV and another Ashes um, victory. Then also in 2015, you played uh, in the World Cup for England, again, impressing against Australia, um, which they seem to sort of be your team. Sort of all your amazing stats. I are always that. I, it sounds good, that one, because I got a hat-trick in a World Cup, but it's probably the worst ever hat-trick <laughs> to be seen in a World Cup. So I, And we got hammered that day as well. We bowled first. I think they got 340 and we got bowled out for about 250. So, yeah, it's... It was a strange one. It was, it was an amazing day because it was a, a, the opening game of the World Cup in front of 100,000 people, literally 100,000 people at the MCG. So you had a lot of Australians there baying for blood. Um, and I got a hat-trick off the last three balls of the innings. I think it was caught third man, caught long off, caught mid off. So I think in about 15 years' time, I'll tell people that they were all either caught at slip or bold or something. But uh, for now, whilst it's still fresh in people's memory, I'm going to have to sort of admit that it wasn't as impressive <laughs> as it sounds. And then 2016 actually was the, the last time you've played for England, again against Bangladesh. But then in 2017, you were actually selected for the Ashes Tour with only injury to sort of stop that going, going for you. That must have been really heartbreaking, you know, sort of working hard again to get back in the fold. And then was it a knee injury, I think? Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I've sort of been in and out of the one-day teams and the test teams for for a number for a period of time, um, and yeah, I I sort of worked hard to try and get myself again back in rhythm because that's one of the things that bowlers, unless you're a Broader and Anderson, who are outstanding and and sort of testament to that is the amount of wickets and the longevity with which they play. Um, I, you're constantly fighting rhythm. You're constantly battling to get yourself in rhythm. So, um, yeah, I sort of worked hard through 2017, again with Middlesex to to try and find that rhythm. I think I got an eight for in a game, the second last game of the year against Lancashire, which probably propelled my case to be selected on that team. I think I was a replacement for Ben Stokes um, because of the Bristol incident. Um, so he was left out of that tour, obviously, and I was. Um, I was called up and, and yeah I literally was just in the nets at Perth we'd had our first practice session I'd gone batting in the nets against the net bowler I think I ducked a ball and I turned the ball off my hip sorry through mid-wicket and I literally just went down to pick the ball up out the side of the net and collapsed in a heap and 
somehow I tore cartilage in my knee um, and it had just got lodged in the wrong place. And, and that was it. Yeah, I could, could barely walk. My knee swelled up and I had to come home and have surgery. And then whilst we were in the surgery, they found out I had a tumour on the inside of my knee that needed to be removed as well. So I sort of had the double whammy of the cartilage operation and the tumour being removed um, at the same time. And that was quite a long road to recovery after that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been looking back at the stats. Actually, your, your stats really do stack up. You've taken 125 uh, wickets in 36 tests at an average of 30.40, also playing both ODI and T20 cricket. Do you still at the moment have aspirations of, of playing for England? Or do you think that's now sort of in the well, past? I think, realistically, I think, I mean, they've named a 55-man squad and I'm not part of that. So if I'm not in the best five elevens of people to... <laughs> potentially play for England at the moment um, I might be up against it but I think you always have that desire and you always have that belief that because I've been there and done it I've experienced the highs and lows of it um, and I've proved that I'm good enough to get to to do well against the best players against the best teams I've performed and and whatever help win matches in those scenarios so um, yeah you always have those aspirations but I do also I'm not an idiot I'm realistic I realize that that it's a long way and there's a lot of things that would have to fall into place for that to happen again. So at the moment, it's just about trying to enjoy cricket. There are times over the last two years since that knee injury that I really haven't enjoyed cricket and um, you're sort of fighting yourself, you're fighting against this image of yourself that you have where you were playing all the games for England at one stage and, and now you're fighting for your place in the Middlesex team because your body won't quite do what it used to. So um, yeah, it's about just trying to adapt and given this little period of time off that we've had and the freshness that comes with that, both physically and mentally, um, and after having done a good winter's work with the coaches at Middlesex, I do feel um, as though I'm ready to get back to that stage again where I'm enjoying cricket and helping Middlesex win games and, and whatever happens, happens from that point. The other thing that I've noted was you've also played for Islamabad United in the PSL. Um, how was that as an experience, the, the Pakistan Premier League? Yeah, it's different. It's sort of my first experience of playing in an overseas league like that. And I played for them for two seasons in 2017 and 18. Um, and we actually won it in 2018. Um, and yeah, it, it's different. But it's also amazing because I got to play in a team with Shane Watson, Brad Hadding, guys that I had played against for a long time in Ashes series and had these fierce battles with then all of a sudden you've broken down those barriers and you're playing for the same team for Islamabad United um, and all sort of coming together to try and win a tournament over the course of four to six weeks. So, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was really interesting and to just see a different perspective and how passionate people are about cricket in those environments. I think when we got to the final that year, the final was played in Karachi in Pakistan. So we got to go across and be part of one of the first games of cricket since the terrorist incident all those years ago, we got to be one of those first um, first people, first um, Western players to go over there and, and play. And and yet yeah, to feel the passion and to, to see how fired up they were to have that game over there, it was amazing. So I'm really glad that I've experienced that. And then also in another sort of highlight, 2016, uh, Middlesex won the county championship for the first time in, in 25 years. Sort of playing your entire career of Middlesex, that must have been amazing. Yeah, we'd had some tough times in there. I think 
when I first started, we were literally bottom or second bottom of the second division. Uh, we weren't a very cohesive unit. Um, but me starting out into, I mean, I, my first game was in 2005, which now feels a long time ago. Um, but Angus Fraser joined the club in 2009, at the beginning of 2009, as director of cricket. And he is Middlesex through and through, played for Middlesex his entire career, um, was obviously incredibly successful for England and sort of one of the greats of the of the 90s uh, from that England team. So he came in and he decided that he wanted Middlesex to regain its identity. He made some good signings. He signed Chris Rogers um, from from Australia, who turned out to be probably the best overseas player that I've played with for the club. Um, and, and from that point, we sort of had this goal that we wanted to be one of the most respected and hard-to-beat teams in the first division. So from 2009... That built 2011, we got promoted to the first division. And then we had a period of 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, where we were one of the main teams in the first division and we made ourselves very hard to beat. So, and we'd come second and third a couple of times over those years and never quite got over the line. So, and I think the, the special thing about that win in 2016 was the fact that we'd built up to that point. It wasn't a random one year. Um, sort of a team came out of nowhere and just won the league. It was it was really those building blocks that we'd put in place over those years for it to culminate in us winning in 2016 at Lords um, on the last day of the summer was was pretty special and and again one of my most fond memories of, of my career today. Yeah, so moving into sort of Middlesex bits, just a little quick fire round. Who's the uh, sort of like a soccer M uh, teammates? Uh, who's the players player? So who's the sort of gun that everyone saw? <laughs> I think I, I think Tim Murter. I think he sort of epitomises what we are as a club. He's hardworking. He's very friendly. He's welcoming to young players. Um, there's not a person in the dressing room who couldn't like him as a bloke. And just the fact that he's 38 and still takes his wickets at 16 or 17 each year um, sort of shows why he's so special for us as a club. So yeah, he's been at Middlesex for my entire career and, and one of my best mates. So, yeah, I think everyone's pretty fond of him. And then who's the messiest in the dressing room? Sam Robson, without a doubt. <laughs> He's literally got underwear, pads, gloves, bats everywhere. I think when he goes out to bat, I'm amazed that he can find all of his kit when he's going out there. He's that messy. <laughs> uh, who's the joker in the dressing room? I would say there's a young lad called Tom Lace who spent last summer on loan at Derby but is young and, and has got a very good chance of playing in the first team I think when we start playing again um, he's he's a very good practical joker and piss taker um, <laughs> and he's he's quite sophisticated in the way he goes about it he's he's, um, he's very up to date with modern technology so um, so he's on the ball so yeah he's probably the one to keep an eye on uh, Most vain? The most vain I think would be, I think, John Simpson, the wicketkeeper. He, um, I think he kisses himself goodnight in the mirror every night before he goes to bed. <laughs> he's, um, and he's, then He's always, if you need moisturiser or hair gel, he's the man that you ask, because no one takes any of it, deodorant, moisturiser, hair gel. He's, he's always in the corner of the dressing room and he's got the whole lot. <laughs> uh, and who's the teacher's pet? teacher's pet would probably be 
I think Nick Gubbins, Nick Gubbins and Max Holden, because I think every time they're doing a gym session, they make sure everyone knows about it. So um, <laughs> I'd say they're probably they're probably the ones that would be sucking up to the coach the most. Uh, and then who's the best trainer? James Harris. I, there's two probably, James Harris and Ethan Bamber. And I think that it's their sort of competition to try and be the fittest in the squad that drives each other on. So I think we're, as a squad, we're generally very fit, but these two guys are like next level. They're like running 17 minute 5Ks and stuff like that. It's ridiculous. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, I, they're probably the two, but it's sort of a competition between the two, two can do the best time or the longest run all the times. So it's exhausting to try and keep up with them. But I'm sure they're, uh, they must be Skeg's favorites then as well with yeah, his keen yeah, fitness. Fan of them. <laughs> uh, who's the uh, sort of worst trainer who just likes getting in for the minimum amount of time and then just getting out to chill out. I've seen Tim Mercer on a number of occasions, park his car in the car park, put his boots on in the car and just jog in from his car to the back of the nets and bowl straight away without a warm-up so <laughs> luckily he's 38 years old and averages 16 so he can get away with that <laughs> not many else of us, not many others of us would get away with that uh who's the hard man in the dressing room i think there's no we've got no one who could stand up for themselves in a fight i think toby <laughs> roland jones might be able to handle himself but other than that we're all pretty wimpy to be honest i think Nick Gubbins is a pretend hard man. I think he's the sort of bloke who'd, who'd hide behind the big man when starting a fight and then run away. Uh, who's Mr. Grumpy? Uh, well, Gus, Angus Fraser, if we're counting him as part of the dressing room, he is probably the grumpiest person I've ever met. Um, it could be, it's a beautiful day. I'm looking out my window at the moment. It's bright blue skies and I can see one cloud in the sky and he'll pinpoint that cloud and say it's going to rain. The smallest <laughs> little grey cloud in the sky. So... Um, yeah, Angus Fraser is probably the most grumpy, but I think there's half a chance I might give him a run for second place. <laughs> uh, and then finally on this section, who's the biggest badger? The biggest badger would be Max Holden. He's a young guy who's a very promising player um, who has played some really important knocks for us already, given he's 21 or 22 years of age. Um, he's He's sort of bedded into the first team at times and done really well but he's the sort of guy who he will go and watch every single ball of his innings back after he's been out even if it lasts two balls or if it lasts 302 balls he'll watch every single one of those back um, and it's been said that he watches videos of Alistair Cook back just before he goes to sleep each night just to make sure he gets a good night's sleep because he literally models himself on him every time yeah his technique is actually very similar to, to Cook the way he cuts yeah, that's no exaggeration. You would literally watch Alistair Cook bat on his on his phone on YouTube before he goes to sleep. <laughs> um, finally, if you could come up with a sort of a greatest team you've played with or against or, or a mixture of both, who would be in that? Well, I'll probably just do with because with and against, I'm lucky I've played against literally the best players in the world. So I could just name you a world 11 um, that would probably beat any team of any era. Um, but I'd say... Of teams that I've played with or players that I've played with, I would probably say that open the batting, Chris Rogers, number one, because he was just a great, he was an amazing um, batsman. He scored 270 in a run chase of 400 in a game at Lords against Yorkshire in 2014. And I've just sat there watching it the whole time, just wondering whether this is even real, whether that can be a thing.
So because he sort of got into Australia side following playing for Middlesex, did he? Did he not? Yeah, yeah. I think he was one of those guys who was very unfortunate that he grew up in the era where Hayden, Langer, Katic were all just the people who opened the batting for Australia. So for him to get in there was very difficult. So he benefited from playing a long time in county cricket and just churning lots and lots of runs, averaging 50 every single year that he played in county cricket and in domestic cricket in Australia. And on the back of those performances, he got selected yeah, for, that, for that Australia team and ended up doing incredibly well. Um, number two, I would say Sam Robson because he's my best mate and it wouldn't be a dressing room without him in it because he's he's just hilarious and funny even though he is messy but he would have to be in there. <laughs> I've actually played cricket with his brother, uh, Gus. Oh really? Angus, yeah, so yeah. I played some club, club cricket with him. He, he's a card as well. When you say messy, he's exactly the same, Gus is. Yeah, I think they're all cut from the same cloth, the Robsons. I think, I think their sister Sophie's really intelligent, so breaks the mould, but the rest <laughs> of them are all the same. Um, I would say number three, probably Joe Root at number three. I mean, that's probably a given. Four, Kevin Peterson, um, just because, again, you can't really argue with that, with the people that I've played with. Five, Ben Stokes, again, has the ability to, um, to sort of manipulate any scenario in any game, as we saw last summer with the World Cup and that yeah. run chase at Headingley. Um, and you've always known that he's capable of it, but for him to go out there and do it in the manner that he did was, was so impressive. So him with his ability to, to just change the game. Um, number six, probably as a wicketkeeper batsman, I think Matt Pryor has been sort of underrated player, I think averaging 40 and having a career of 80 test matches um, and being as tidy as he was behind the stumps, I think is underrated um, and yeah his counter-attacking ability to be able to put pressure on the opposition um, I think is is pretty special seven and it's going to be a long tail I think but I love bowlers so I'm going to pack the team with bowlers seven probably Graham Swan um, arguably at the back end of his career seven's a bit too high for him but I think in the pomp of his career he um, he was very capable of scoring runs but again just some of the balls that I've seen in bowl and some of the games that I've seen him win for us, um, even in English conditions, I think, again, he's very underrated for the job that he did for that team for a long period of time. Um, eight, run out of ideas here. <laughs> eight would probably be Murali Kartik because I'd want a left arm spin option in there. And again, just having played with him at Middlesex and seen what he can do um, and just the way that he's probably the most aggressive spinner I've ever seen. I think if he was a fast bowler, he'd be the equivalent of like a Shoaib Akhtar down, like breathing on you, in your face. Um, but he used to do it as a spinner. So he'd go down, sledge the batsmen, be shouting at them, tell them they were useless. And then he'd roll out a 50 mile an hour slow left armour. And it just, <laughs> it just didn't make sense. He was just so angry all the time. But again, his competitiveness and his ability to be able to control a game and then when it was spinning was just completely unplayable. Um, it was pretty amazing. Uh, nine, I would say Stuart Broad. Again, 500, almost 500 test wickets speaks for itself. Yeah. Ten, James Anderson. Again, 500 odd test wickets speaks for itself. And 11, Tim Murta because we need a little dibbly-dobbly <laughs> and 
he has to bat 11 because some of the ways I've seen him get out is pretty embarrassing. <laughs> Apologise if I missed anyone off there, but yeah, off the top of my head, that's probably my 11. I mean, yes, it's pretty special 11. Um, just a couple of final questions. Who's the sort of best batter you've bowled to? You just feel like, what, what can I do? And he just sort of hits you everywhere. I think the hardest player I've ever bowled at was Shane Watson. And I've bowled at some incredible players, De Villiers, Amla for South Africa, Callis, Ponting. Like I've bowled against pretty much all of the best players in the world, Kohli, Tendulkar. But the person that I found the hardest to bowl at was Shane Watson. I just found that he picked up my length so quickly, wherever it was, even when I was bowling at my quickest, he would be able to drive me down the ground if it was a bit overpitched or he used to pull the ball but he'd pull it 30 yards in front of square on the leg side more, more a mid-wicket he'd never pull it yeah. a square leg it would always be mid-wicket and if you get pulled that far in front of square as a bowler you sort of think twice about banging another one in because it's so imposing so for someone who had the ability to impose themselves on me um, and keep coming at me all the time he, I found him the hardest and then obviously you're not Known for your batting, but um, who was the who was the quickest bowler you've ever faced? Um, well, the quickest was Sean Tate. I think I got promoted up the order to number nine in a one day in my first series in 2011, and Tate was bowling 97 miles an hour, and I didn't see it. I lasted three balls. I had two player misses, and then my middle stump ended up impaled through the keeper <laughs> about 40 yards back, I think, outside the circle. Um, but probably the biggest mistake I've ever made was bouncing Dale Stane and hitting him, I think, in the ribs at Lords in 2012. Um, I hit him in the ribs and then bowled him, like, I think he knocked his off stump out of the ground or bowled him like past his outside edge, hit his off stump. Um, but when I hit him and he was sort of winded, um, that evening I was doing the press because I'd had a half-decent day. So when you have a half-decent day, you have to go and speak to the press at the end of the day's play. And the South Africans, as I was leaving the press conference, they, they walked past towards their team bus. And I saw Stain and I was like, um, are you all right? He was like, yeah, 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 I'm fine. It hurt like fuck, but I'm fine. But you'll be getting that back tomorrow. Don't worry. <laughs> so I, um, I literally spent that entire night worrying about when I'd bat against Dale Stain the next day. Lo and behold, I faced him the next day and I ducked into a ball. It hit me on the head and went down to fine leg and, um, to be fair, within the spirit of the game, he asked me if I was all right. And we had a laugh and joke about it. But it's sort of one of the most light or the most probable things that, that would have ever happened um, was getting a bounce back from Dale Stane. So, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um, who's the sort of toughest bowler you've ever faced? Obviously, it's spinners included. Yeah. Um, I always find leg spinners pretty hard to face, to be honest. I think... There's a guy called um, Scott Borthwick who played for Durham and then um, and then uh, Surrey afterwards. And he's a part-time leg spinner, but I can't pick his googly. So every time I bat <laughs> against him, he just bowls me a googly and it hits me in front of the stumps and everyone walks off the pitch. So yeah, <laughs> of all the great bowlers I've faced and, and, and that, I think yeah, um, Scott Borthwick seems to get me out every single time he bowls at me. No, good stuff. And thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate you no taking worries. time out. Pleasure. No worries. Sorry I was a bit late. No, that's right. No worries at all. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast. Remember to hit the subscribe button to have episodes automatically downloaded to your device each week. No one, no one, no one.
Shoot me.